This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by BuddyBill. BuddyBuild is a mobile-optimized continuous integration and delivery platform that takes minutes to set up. Thousands of mobile development teams love BuddyBuild because it's the fastest way to distribute their apps to users and gather bug reports, feedback, and crash reports. Then use built-in integrations for their bug trackers and tools like Slack to seamlessly integrate that information back into their development process. For a free trial, go to devchat.tv slash buddy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 164 of the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. Lane Mosley. Hello from Lehigh, Utah. I'm James Zuber, and today we have a guest on our show. Please welcome Boris Bugling. Hey, from Berlin. Well, welcome. So you've talked about a lot of Thanks. things, and a lot of our listeners know who you are, but today we're going to talk about cross-platform Swift. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm um, doing uh, the iOS development at a company called Contentful, and uh, we build a CMS, and I do the uh, developing the SDK. And the end of last year, when uh, Swift came first out for Linux, I started looking a bit into if it makes sense and how um, we could support Swift on Linux with Contentful. And that's how I get started looking into it. Didn't end up um, doing anything for Contentful specifically with cross-platform Swift, but still um, looked into it, gave some talks about it. Yeah. So that's very cool. So what are... What is the state of cross-platform Swift? Is it ready for like toy projects? Is it just like messing around with Linux? What can we do with it so far? Um, yeah, the state is very different depending on the platform. So originally it just came out for Linux. And since then, a bunch of people have submitted pull requests to support it on other platforms like FreeBSD and uh, Windows and Android. And um, at the moment, really the Linux port is the only one that is somewhat usable and there you can you can basically do most of the things you can do with swift on the apple platforms so the main difference is that the foundation libraries which we have on os 10 and um, the other apple platforms are written in objective c and for the swift open source project apple decided to actually rewrite them in swift and that's part of the open source project and because that's they just started it at the end of last year that's not quite complete yet. So um, there's still some APIs missing from Foundation on, on Linux. And so that's the main drawback, I would say, from the um, things Apple gives us on Linux. There's also some differences because the Linux Swift doesn't use the Objective-C runtime. So there's some differences in casting and some smaller features are not available. But apart from that, it's pretty much on par and Apple plans to bring it um, on the same level when Swift 3.0 ships. 
that was going to be my question. I looked at particularly, I looked at foundation, like right after the open source release first happened and, and there was a ton missing, you know, you'd open up source files and it was all just stubs with basically nothing there yet. And I wondered how fast things are progressing and if, if there was a, a timetable for having it really be at the same level as foundation on OS 10 or iOS. Yeah, it, it was progressing pretty fast, but I, I don't think this, I, I, the original timetable was to have it ready with Swift 3.0. Um, I'm not sure if it actually will be 100% done when that's released because it's actually not so far away anymore. And a bunch of things are still not there. So um not 100% sure there. But definitely there's a lot more there now than um, there was back in at the end of 2015. I'm curious to know about tooling. So if you're going to write Swift on on a on OS 10 or for iOS or for any of the Apple platforms, the obvious thing is you just fire up Xcode and uh, you know you've already got a really good IDE for Swift. What are people using for tools for writing Swift on Linux or other platforms? Yeah, first um, they're using uh, Swift Package Manager, which was also part of the open source release, right? To um, manage dependencies, it's not useful really yet for iOS and stuff like this. But on Linux, it's really um, the only way to go to manage your third-party dependencies. And then there's a bunch of plugins for different editors to help with Swift development, for example, for VI or RIM and um, also for Sublime Text. And they all basically built on top of um, SourceKit, which is also the same framework that is used by Xcode for the like editor features like source code highlighting and code completion and things like that. And SourceKit was also part of the open source release so people could start building plugins for different editors built on top of that but they're all obviously not nearly as mature as xcode so i I personally still just use xcode and develop the things on os 10 and then just transfer them over to the linux machine and then there just use vi to basically fix the small differences that are still there yeah, so I guess that's an option if you can still develop on a Mac and use Xcode, and then as long as you've written things so that yeah. you're not using platform-specific stuff or using Cocoa APIs. Yeah, know. exactly. Yeah, there was also a session um, at WBDC about using Swift on the server, and um, it was mostly IBM presenting their things, and they also did basically the same thing. So they have now a Mac app for interacting with the IBM services, and they also showed that they were developing the server side code, basically an Xcode on OS X and then deploying to a Linux server. So when I first heard about, uh, you know, Swift on Linux and being cross-platform, I thought, oh, awesome, we can, you know, write a backend with Swift. Is there any clear leader yet on kind of like a web framework or, or you know, a web server framework going on right now? I wouldn't say so. There's actually a bunch of things that are on a similar level. Um, there's a framework called Perfect which I think even started slightly before Swift on Linux was announced and they started making it as an OS 10 thing and then ported it. And there is a framework called Zevo, which is pretty active and does a bunch of stuff. And I believe there's also a framework called Vapor. And then there's a bunch of things from IBM. They have the Kaitura or whatever the pronunciation is framework. And a web server and things like this for developing uh, server-side stuff with code from IBM. And they also have like integrations with IBM's APIs. And then there's also a bunch of smaller things. Um, a, a package I really like is called Frank, which is similar to Ruby's Sinatra. 
So it's a really very um, lightweight thing, but it's um, nice for like writing smaller things. It has basically a DSL more or less in inside Swift for just specifying what happens when certain routes are used. Yeah, so step back. Frank is from Sinatra. Sinatra is a, just a slimmed down version for Ruby. Like Rails, you have a lot of things that are done for you. Sinatra does not do that much stuff for you. You set up a route and you do all the, the database work all yourself. So that would be yeah. a real stripped down thing. Yeah. So how, how does the IBM framework fit in? Uh, when I was at AllConf, they did a talk there. And there were a lot of people excited about what they said. I, I missed the talk. I'm not sure why. We might have been recording a, an episode but how does IBM fit into it? How do they differ than, um, than, than Frank? Oh, they, their offering is a lot uh, bigger. As I said earlier, they, they were basically doing the session at WBDC about server-side Swift, and they have like bindings to all kinds of, of IBM services. They have their own hosting, right? And they made a Mac app so that you can really easily deploy your app from your web app from OS X to their cloud services. And they have a bunch of examples. So I think in terms of maturity, it's probably the the farthest along. But I still wouldn't say that like it's clear that they will be the, the one framework everybody uses. They also sort of seem to have the backing of Apple in that they got a whole session at WWDC, which is, at least in, in my time, it's pretty unusual to have non-Apple employees doing a session about their own thing. Yeah, I think it's like maybe the second or third time something like this happened ever. I think you're right, though. I, I think even though IBM has a lot of resources, there will always be, you know, little indie guys, like Perfect, you know, doing awesome stuff. So, yeah, although Perfect are probably the least indie of, of the rest. They've got a they've got funding. and Oh, really? I didn't know that. I think they're kind of second in the running for or, or maybe basically tied with IBM. They're doing they seem to be doing a lot of marketing, too. Yeah, we had the, the Perfect team on a while, a few months back, might might have been last year. So we got we got a good tour of that, and they're an existing platform. They had a full system built out on a, a different language. I can't remember what the language was, and they transferred a lot of that to Swift. But so they already had the I guess the concepts down for a backend Swift platform. But definitely interesting play. Do you get the sense that anybody's actually using any of this stuff for anything real yet? I mean, it seems like it's fun to play with and, you know, it's interesting and whatever, but is anyone actually running any of the Swift on Linux or the, the back-end frameworks in production yet that you know of? Uh, I definitely met someone at WBDC who said they were running, uh, like rolling out their first microservice written with uh, Kitura in production. So at least one company does it. Somebody has to be first, right? Yeah. I just wonder because if I'm thinking about, you know, right now using something like this in production, it all seems like it's so much in flux and so much stuff's unfinished and Swift 3 is coming down the line and it seems like it, you know, is a little bit of a hard sell to use it in production so far. But I imagine that'll change relatively fast, especially after Swift 3 is done. Hey, if anything in JavaScript is in production, I mean, that's always in flux and will <laughs> always be. So maybe it'll be okay. I guess you're right. So Swift is relatively stable, I guess is what you're saying. At least we have a real language to write in, right? There you go. Burn. Yeah, I would definitely say that it probably makes sense to wait for the stable Swift 3 to start in production because it's not so far away. But um, yeah, I think with that, it's a pretty good base. I mean, sure, other ecosystems has a, have a lot more existing code that you can reuse going on, but I think that will also quickly change. 
Yeah, I think it will too. It seems like there's a lot of excitement around Swift and around creating packages for it and, and new libraries and all, and all of that. A lot of it's already happening and if adoption picks up for cross-platform or for, for Swift on the back end, it would seem like that would accelerate. I'm sort of curious about other uses for, for cross-platform Swift. The one use we've talked about where, where it's used on the back end for for servers, for web services, and that kind of thing is sort of an obvious one. But I wonder if there are other interesting things that Swift could potentially be used for. For example, writing cross-platform apps or Swift on embedded systems or, uh, I don't know, something I haven't thought of. Not really. I mean, there's the Android port of Swift, but it's very basic at this point in time because it's only, um, obviously, you only have Foundation. I'm actually not sure Foundation even works yet fully on Android. You might only have the standard library. And with that, you cannot really, I mean, you can write an app, but it's a lot of work, I guess. Um, so that is pretty far away from being in any way usable. But it's probably the one thing that also makes sense to, um, I've seen people like playing around with writing actual Linux desktop apps using Swift. But also that is, I think, only like experimental, nothing nearing production in any kind of way. So that would be interesting to me, being able to write Linux or even Windows desktop apps in Swift. I know uh, Microsoft at Build this year announced that they are planning to support Swift for Project Islandwood or the Windows Bridge for iOS. So that seems to be coming down the pipe sometime, but they didn't give a timetable or anything like that. Certainly not available now. I've played around with putting Swift. I've got a Raspberry Pi and uh, just last week got a, a... chip by next thing which is sort of like a raspberry pi it's a little nine dollar computer based on a system on a chip and i got swift the swift compiler running on both of those uh, i haven't done anything at all really interesting beyond getting the compiler to run but i keep thinking i should come up with a project and you know make a robot or something that's using swift on linux and i've i there are other people playing around with the same sort of stuff but i still haven't seen anything really super interesting uh, in that area so one of us needs to you know, get in gear and do it. I mean, if you said the term Swifty robot, I think everyone would take you seriously. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I really do plan to, but it's just, you know, well, you all know it's one of those things where uh, you've got a million projects and not very much time. I will say, though, that being able to write, I've got this this thing called a pocket chip. I, I did a, well, I tweeted about it, I don't know, a week ago or something, but uh, it's it's basically sort of like a little retro computer, but it's a fully integrated computer with a little tiny keyboard and a five inch touch screen and, and whatever. And it's using the, the chip as the brains of the whole thing. And, uh, I got the Swift compiler running on that and it's pretty fun to be able to, you know, write a Swift program on this little thing that costs $50 and has its own keyboard and everything. And it makes me wish I could write Swift on my iPhone. Although I guess now with Swift playgrounds, we can do it on the iPad at least. Yeah. It's exciting to see what comes up from people's you know imaginations, what they're, going to start doing because you know definitely a lot of options from embedded to you know server type stuff and a desktop app so i I look forward to i think i think swift has great legs as far as a language it's getting wide adoption so i think it's and it's well done that language itself i think people enjoy working with it so i think there's a lot of it's a good future for it there's a lot of languages out there at this point it's hard to say that one will become important in different areas but i think swift is really doing well for such being such a young language 
Yeah, I, I hope so. I wonder if I don't have a great perspective because uh, I think for those of us who are already doing iOS or Mac development on Apple platforms, we're using Swift because it's obviously the language, the new language to use for that stuff. And so we want to apply our knowledge in that language to other problems and other platforms. But I, I am interested to see if Swift catches on sort of among a, a broader segment of people, people who are not already developers in the Apple ecosystem and essentially come to Swift because of its merits as a language instead of just the, the ecosystem around it. I kind of wonder what you guys think about that. To be honest, I don't talk to very many developers who are not Apple platform developers, at least very often. Yeah, I think Swift has a good pedigree. They're putting a lot of thought into language, so it's it's fun to write. You know, it, it, they're doing things just the right way. Their their philosophy, if you would call that, is solid, and it you know it fits well within something that could go for something that's performance that has good performance. It's compiled, so it's going to be fast. So, you know, if you have you need scalability with your application, you know, Swift will be a a good option. A benefit over Go is it's not garbage collected. So if you're doing something real time, you can tell when your memory is going to get released because it's going to use ARC. So you can tell when something's gone, it's going to be cleaned up. Something like Go embedded is hard, at least with real time, because you don't know when that garbage collection is going to fire off. And that could be, that could, you know, halt your system and and break it just because the timing's off. So I think for embedded work, it's a good play. And for server work, it's a good play for just the performance. And people like writing it. Yeah, I think so too. The, I think back in the, when Swift was introduced, Apple had this slide where they had, um, like languages grouped in, um, terms of developer productivity and, um, performance. And they basically had a whole group of things, uh, which are performant, things like Java and Objective C and a bunch of things which were developers are really productive, like Python and Ruby. And then there was basically this quadrant where nothing is at the moment. Things are performant and like nice to use. And there was then the logo for Swift. So that's um, at least how Apple sees it. And I think it's kind of true. And also compared to other compiled languages for like server use and stuff like this, like Go, I think Go has a lot less momentum, I would say. A lot of people know to write Go. These do have all the people from Apple platforms who already know how to write Swift. So they can then also use it somewhere else. Whereas with Go, there's only that use, basically. Yeah, I'm really curious how the impact will be if you can write, you know, your app back to front. If, if there's really great backend stuff that keeps coming out and you have developers that can write, you know, the app, even a Mac app. And the back end all in Swift, I think that's a, a big push to make it even more popular personally. Yes, anything but JavaScript. Right. At this point you have you don't have very many options. You have JavaScript, C sharp, but yeah, being able to do back end with Swift, that would be cool. I did a little bit of Go a couple years ago and it was great. Like the language is cool, but it's fit the use case really well. And then I said, Well now what? You know, and I haven't touched it since. So this is a little off topic, but Boris, I know you work on CocoaPods, and CocoaPods is, is at least mostly uh, written in Ruby, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I know you do a fair amount of Ruby programming. And I wonder if, I, I don't exactly know why uh, Ruby was chosen for writing CocoaPods in the first place, but I wonder if uh, maybe Swift will start to be used in places where something like Ruby was used to create those kinds of tools, which Co- CocoaPods is not really a cross-platform tool. It is a, you know, it's a command line tool. It's really sort of a whole suite of tools. And do you think Swift will lend itself well to, to being used for things like that in the future? 
Um, yeah, I think eventually it could be. At the moment, I think the main problem is that there's no good story for distributing those kinds of things. So the one problem is that you need all the Swift libraries, which on no platform yet are shipped with the system. So you also need to bring them along somehow. Whereas if you use something like Go, which actually became pretty popular for like doing command line tools, you can build one static executable and then distribute that. And for Swift, that's not really existing. You can distribute it as open source, but then you have the issue that also Swift Package Manager doesn't really have a way to install something. So at the moment, it's just, I think, a big problem to actually distribute a command line tool properly, which is written in Swift. Okay, I suppose Homebrew, you know, like something like Homebrew could be used for that. But again, it doesn't come with the system, which is an extra step for anyone that wants to, to use it. Yeah, and still you have the issue. Okay, so if you want to distribute a binary, where do you actually put the Swift libraries or maybe any dependencies you use? Because you also don't want to mess with other programs, maybe using a different Swift version. And so basically that part you have to make up for your own. Homebrew doesn't help you there. And when you do it from source, you run into the problem that it's really specific what version of Swift the user needs. So I personally have made some command line tools in Swift. And then I had, for example, one that was using Swift 2.2 and was using um, Swift PM to build inside the homebrew formula. And I thought, okay, this this will work. And then um, during the Swift 2.2 development, at some point, the Swift package was actually removed from it. So the homebrew formula broke. And at the moment, there's actually no good way to distribute 2.2 command line or any kind of package as source because the Swift package manager is actually not part of the stable version. So that needs at least to have Swift 3.0 being stable to be in any way feasible. Do you know if making it so that the Swift package manager also can, can install tools instead of just uh, libraries is something that's on the, the roadmap for it? I suppose it's um, open source, so... Yeah. In theory, community could do that. but I, I don't think any kind of installation is at the moment part of it. You can build command line tools with it, but it always is built um, in like a local directory, right? There's no um, installation part in the whole tool, which is actually similar to CocoaPods, which actually was also never had a way to install things globally in any way. But most other package managers have that, right? If you look at um, Ruby gems or something, it just installs binaries inside the system. And most other tools also have this. Even, um, yeah, when we look at JavaScript, when you use NPM, you have the option to install something globally. And for Swift, this is at the moment simply not really covered in any way. Maybe someday, because I think it would be nice to be able to write those kind of tools in Swift. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, as I said, I, I wrote some small tools and from the like development perspective, it's actually re really nice. And with Swift Package Manager, it's also nice to develop, which like inside Xcode, it never was so nice, I think, especially if you consider like third-party dependencies. At least you have those kind of somewhat integrated with a Swift Package Manager because it can at least link those statically into the binary. But yeah, there's still the problem with uh, what you do with the Swift libraries and how to manage this kind of things. So I guess there will be eventually... So one problem is like half solved maybe with uh, Swift 3.0 because most of the source stability is no longer an issue or should no longer be an issue with this. So most of the really big changes are in there. So if there's Swift 4.0, there's maybe not so much difference. 
in terms of source code and until it really becomes feasible is actually, I think, when we have either Swift shipping with the system or Swift being having ABI stability so that it doesn't matter which Swift version um, something is built with, it will still run if you have any kind of Swift libraries. That's the dream. So if you had your way of doing it, um, how would you solve the, this problem, the distributing command line tools with Swift? If you, if you had time to work on this, what would you do? Yeah, I'm actually not sure. I was thinking about it a couple of times making something to do it. But one way, I guess, would be to maybe add some support for this into Homebrew so that Homebrew would know about Swift versions somehow and could separate the Swift libraries for different versions from one another. On the other hand, Homebrew cannot really distribute them. So you would still have the problem, where do you get them? And it is also not so easy to even automate some kind of downloading for them. There's, there's the builds on Swift.org for Swift versions, but they don't really correspond to versions you might have in Xcode. So it's actually kind of hard to deal with Swift versioning even um, in general because there's no agreed upon version for something. You have the, you have the versions of Swift that ship with Xcode. Then you have the builds that you can download on Swift.org. And even those have the issue that you download something and it has a date attached to it. Whereas the actual build is identifying itself with like a git commit hash. So even if you like would record which Swift version was used to build something somewhere inside the package so that the user could download the right version, even that kind of mapping doesn't exist at the moment. So I don't think there with the, with the current state, there's really a good way to solve it. So I think it's just a case of it needs to wait a bit until um, this can be solved. Maybe with, with Swift 3.0, at least we have a stable version of Swift with the Swift Package Manager. So um, it could be an option to say, okay, we distribute these kinds of things as source, and we expect that the user has the Swift compiler for 3.0 installed. And because it's stable, we know which version that is. And then those kinds of versioning problems don't exist. That's kind of way we had to do things in the earlier Linux days. You get the source, you compile it, and it never worked on your, your distribution. <laughs> yeah. So just like that, it'll be great. But it sounds like that's that's what we're stuck with. But, you know, downloading source isn't that bad for most people that are, that are doing this are can be tech-savvy developers. Uh, they may not have Xcode installed, so it might be important to actually get the correct version of not because most of us here have our Swift versions we got from Xcode. That's how I get my Swift version. But um, you may not have that luxury or you may not want to have Xcode to do it. So, yeah, I can see where it's a problem. You mean you don't want to download a 5-gig file to compile your command line tool? Well, I'm cool with that, but, you know, other people... Exactly. I don't think everyone would like that. (laughs) So I haven't used uh, the package manager at all. What is it like to to use it and does it work good is it awesome not awesome um yeah i would say it, it works pretty well it's um like being rapidly developed so new features um happen all the time and i think one issue at the moment is that there's no good discovery for packages yet there's this ibm package cloud thing or something ibm swift package catalog i think it's called which kind of works, but at the moment is basically like searching through GitHub to find packages. So I think this is something um, we have solved pretty well in CocoaPods, where we have a pretty good search and pages for all the packages, and we have download statistics and statistics for like the 
um, what we consider important for the quality and um, all these kinds of like infrastructure things as are still missing. So if you um, develop your kind, kind of your own thing, I think that's fine. But if you um, if you're looking for third party packages, this is not not really solved problem yet. Also, like documentation, for example, in CocoaPods, we have uh, Coco Docs where you have the documentation for everything online, easily available. And this is also not a thing that Swift Package Manager solves at the moment. So I think there's still um, a way to go to um, make it actually usable well and enable things like package discovery and stuff like this. Yeah, I think discovery is very important to a package manager. I think, you know, one of the things CocoaPods does so well, just like you said, is discovery. And so until we get a really good discovery platform there, it'll be hard to, to really get into it. Seems like CocoaPods has one. I wouldn't be offended if they, you know, added support for Swift, for packages that are in the Swift package manager. That's an interesting idea. I wanted to ask you about a something that's also somewhat unrelated to cross-platform Swift, but I love your, um, it's the weirdest, weirdest name tool I use, but your This Could Be Us But You Playing tool for generating playgrounds from CocoaPods or, or Carthage packages. And I was going to ask you about adding support for Swift Package Manager packages to that, but it looks like you already have an issue for that. Um, yeah, that's right. I have an issue for that. I haven't really done anything in that regard. I think my main issue was... I actually don't remember. Oh, yeah. My main issue was actually the versioning because with Swift Package Manager, you always need a version. And at the moment, the tool, you just specify a package and would just use the latest version. And this is actually not something you can do with the Swift Package Manager. You at least need to know the major version of a package to be able to fetch it. And I think at this point, I stop for now because then the command line experience would be a little bit too complicated, in my opinion. Something else I would, I was looking into, uh, though, was generating playgrounds for Swift playgrounds on iPad from a CocoaPod. But that also turned out not to be feasible at the moment because this, uh, the Swift playgrounds on iPad actually also have a versioning problem versus other versions of Swift 3.0 because there is a little bit older version of Swift 3.0 in Swift playgrounds, um, for iPad versus Xcode 8. And that version is not downloadable anyway, anywhere. So you can actually not really write a playground and be sure that it works on the iPad on OS 10. So that's also a problem. I had to, a project I had to step, stop for now. So I, hopefully that's something that gets fixed as the um, iPad. Yeah, I guess as, as the betas progress, I guess eventually it will stabilize because there will be just one Swift 3.0. I just thought it was kind of a bummer that it's not like this from the start, but oh well, it's a beta. Yeah, that would be really, that would be really nice. I don't think I even realized that it would be possible to use pods in a Swift playground on iPad. Um, yeah, the idea was basically to use the auxiliary sources, um, that playground support, right? We are kind of the sources directory and put the pod basically in there. And then be able to use it in the actual playground. Ah, oh, okay. So there's not there's no support for module uh, framework. No, 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 not not really. No, that was the idea. Well, cool. Let's let's go to the picks, Andrew. What do you have for us? I've got two picks today. Uh, my first pick is uh, actually well, I went to Cocoa Heads last night, and um, there were two presentations, one really terrible and one really good. And the terrible one was the one I did, and the good one was one uh, my friend Drew. Ingebretson did, and he talked about 3D rendering techniques, 
And it was, it was actually sort of not iOS specific, but he went through, he did a presentation about how, uh, 3D rendering using rasterization, ray tracing, and ray casting works. And it was, even though those are really math he- heavy topics, he managed to make his presentation, uh, have almost no math in it at all and explain things in a way that you could really understand how these algorithms work. So it was the first time I've really felt like I understood how 3D rendering works at a, at a fairly low level. Of course, he skipped over some details, but nothing too crazy. And even better, he, he wrote a, an app in Swift that runs on iOS that implements all three of these rendering techniques in fairly simple Swift code without using a library like OpenGL or Metal. It's all done on the CPU in code that you can read. And I was very, very impressed with what he did. So my pick is his his project, which is open source, called 3D Rendering Techniques. And if you want to read through code to do rasterization and, and, and raycasting, and raycasting is like the technique that was used in old games in the 90s like Doom and Wolfenstein 3D, uh, or ray tracing, which is like what's used for Pixar movies. Uh, it's really quite an accessible way to figure out how those algorithms work. So that's my first pick. And my second pick is one that I mentioned earlier uh, in the show. It's the, the, the pocket chip. I got well, I backed this on Kickstarter, I don't know, probably a year, year and a half ago, something like that, and I got mine last week, and I've just been having a blast with it. They've done a really good job with it. Um, I got the Swift compiler running on it, but it's also got, uh, it's running Linux, it's got a terminal, but it's also got some apps that it comes with, including a little simple music synthesizer and, a, and Pico 8, which is a fantasy 8-bit console that you can write games for and comes with a bunch of games. And um, So I've just been having a lot of fun with it. Those are my picks. Lane, do you have any picks for us? I do. I have two. Uh, the first one is I started listening to a book. Uh, it's Steve Wozniak's book called I Was. And it is a, a very fascinating look into uh, Steve Wozniak's life growing up, how he met Steve Jobs, where he went to college, how brilliant the guy was, everything. And, you know, being an Apple fan and, and writing software for Apple platforms. I think anybody interested in that kind of stuff will find the book completely fascinating. The other pick I have is not technology related at all. Um, I played a game over the holiday with my sister and her husband called Spikeball. And it is a really great outdoor game, a lot similar to volleyball that you can play with up to four people. And it requires just a, a little thing that you buy. You put it on the ground, has this net and... You spike the ball at each other, play it like volleyball. Super fun, great outdoor game. Very cool. So I've got one pick. I, I was a little under the weather for the last couple of weeks, so I spent a lot of downtime watching a little Netflix, and I ran across one documentary I probably wouldn't have watched normally. It's called it's We Are Twisted Sister. It's on Netflix right now. And, you know, I'll watch an old heavy metal doc- documentary anytime, but I'm not really a fan of Twisted Sister. I can't ever tell you a time I've intentionally listened to their music. Maybe when I was like fifth grade or something. But this is a really interesting uh, documentary. It shows their early stages of their career. You know, most documentaries spend about five minutes talking about how they get their first record deal and then they go on from there. This, the whole time, the whole time is basically what they did. They were a club band for 10 years before they had any kind of record deal or attraction. So it was really interesting to see what they went through. And it reads less like a music documentary. It, it, It almost, watch it like watching an underdog story like a rudy or something so it's it's really i thought it was really entertaining to see what they went through it's a good view of the music business um even now uh, you have a lot of the same things uh, they were a pretty popular club band in the suburbs of new york and the labels wouldn't touch them they, they couldn't get signed to anything 
but eventually they went to England and made a big hit there. But really good documentary. A lot of parallels between the music scene and the startup scene now. Now everyone, they want to get funded and some companies do it without getting funded and what they'll do. And so just watching them try and figure it out and work without you know the powers that be, the gatekeepers really backing them up. Um, it was really really entertaining. So not safe for work, mostly for language, but you know other general rock and roll type stuff. But uh, Twisted Sister the movie worth watching if you got two hours. Boris, do you have a pick for us? Um, yes, I do. My pick is um, actually a newsletter, which is um, Swift uh, Weekly Brief. Not sure if you have picked it before, but um, Jesse Squires does a very good job putting together everything that has happened in open source Swift every week in that newsletter and like, um, also linking to issues or bugs that, um, are easy to, uh, for people to get started contributing to the open source Swift projects. So that's just a really good way to keep up to date with what's happening there when the mailing lists and things like this are a little bit too high volume and also to find, um, starting points to contribute. Very cool. Yeah. I know a number of people that are fans of the of that list. So that's it for the picks. We had a lot of good stuff, a lot of good picks. Boris, thanks a lot for coming on. It was a great show and it's great to see how Swift is developing. I mean, we talk about Swift, cross-platform Swift every few months or so, but there's always new things coming out. So it's definitely cool. And thanks for filling us in. Uh, Thanks for having me. It was a good times. Thanks Boris. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.